This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of I Want to Matter. Your life is too short and too precious to waste. Written and narrated by New York Times bestseller Kathy Lee Gifford. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to The Table, where we discuss issues of God and culture. I'm Mikel Del Rosario, Cultural Engagement Manager at the Hendricks Center here at Dallas Theological Seminary. But if you're watching this video or listening to the sound of my voice, uh, you know that I'm not at Dallas Theological Seminary proper because uh, I'm not in the studio right now. We have a number of different ways that we bring you content on the table, and this is one of them, uh, remote recordings uh, coming from our respective homes. And so we are pleased to bring you The Table uh, today this way through a remote broadcast podcast. And today our topic on the table is the bedrock of Christianity. We're going to be talking about historical facts surrounding Jesus' death and his historic resurrection from the dead. I have two guests today coming to us via Zoom. First guest is Dr. Daryl Bach, Executive Director of Cultural Engagement and Senior Research Professor of New Testament at DTS. Welcome, Daryl. My pleasure to be with you. This is the very first time I've ever had you as a remote guest. What can I say? I mean, you know, social distancing is a real thrill. We can thank COVID for all this. I have no idea when people will watch this, so they may, we may still or not still be in COVID world, but right now we're deep in the middle of it. Inshallah. May we well, not be in COVID anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and our second guest on the table today coming to us also via Zoom is Justin Bass. Justin is a professor of New Testament at Jordan Evangelical Theological Seminary in Amman, Jordan, and the author of a book which is called The Bedrock of Christianity. And the subtitle is The Unalterable Facts of Jesus' Death and Resurrection. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much. The last time that uh, we had both of you guys here as guests on the show, it was my very first time hosting the Table Podcast. And so, Justin, you might remember you just finished your debate with Bart Ehrman at the time. And so right. it's special to have you guys back here on the show together again. Bobsy Tan's return. <laughs> <laughs> Daryl will call you a veteran of foreign wars. That's exactly right. Uh, thankfully, you're actually in the United States right now, so we don't have a uh, time difference. But Justin, how did this book come about, and what did you hope to uh, accomplish by writing it? Well, well, first, I want to definitely thank uh, Dr. Bach uh, in this respect, because the book really wouldn't have probably, it probably would have been written, but I don't know uh, where exactly it would have been published if I hadn't gotten the help from Dr. Bach. And he also wrote the Ford, uh, really, and I, after he had fin- uh, sent it over to me and I read it, I was like, this is perfect. It's really perfect. I even changed a few things towards the end to uh, uh, fit with some of the great points that he made in the forward. But w- one of the things that I, I really wanted to do with this book, uh, w- what really I would say inspired me to write it primarily, is to put really the bedrock facts, facts that are agreed upon across the board, Jewish, agnostic, atheist, um, liberal, conservative, Catholic, Protestant. When you go across the board of scholars across the Western world, where do they all agree on facts about Jesus, about his death, about his resurrection, about even his earliest followers and the, the rise of this, of this indestructible movement? And uh, I wanted to put them all kind of in a one-stop shop, put them all in, in just one book. There's, there's a lot of excellent books on the resurrection, but I wanted them to be in, in a place where we didn't have all the other debates, the debates uh, that definitely we need to have in the Gospels. 
but but I stuck with Paul and, and I wanted to, to stick with the facts that just everyone agreed on. Uh, and so that, that would, I, I, I've shared that that was pr pretty much the primary reason that I wrote the book. But another reason really is that I found, you know, in my just, you know, evangelism uh, as a pastor for a while and, and you know, just sharing uh, Christianity at debates, uh, I've, I've found again and again, atheists, people who come to me that are atheists and that have come out of a Christian background, again and again, I hear this story that it had something, something to do with the, the inerrancy of the Bible. It had something to do with when they discovered some sort of error, some sort of mistake in the Bible, which I don't think there are, but, but they were convinced and that led them down the path uh, towards uh, agnosticism or atheism. A famous example of this, of course, is Bart Ehrman himself as he shares in uh, beginning of misquoting Jesus, you know, he said the floodgates opened for him when he thought Mark uh, made an error in, in uh, the gospel of Mark uh, chapter two. And I, I just wish I had been there and maybe if Daryl had been there at that time and said, Bart, even if Mark made an error, Jesus still rose from the dead. <laughs> but, um, you know, and, and I just see this again, even that, that famous musician that came out recently and said he, he left Christianity. I read his, his, tes his deconversion testimony and he said it was issues of inerrancy, but he never mentioned the resurrection. So I hope with this book, we can equip Christians uh, all over the world to get back to the bedrock. The Bible, I, I believe, is the word of God. I do believe it is inerrant, but it's not our bedrock. The bedrock of our faith is Jesus' death and resurrection. So I'm hoping to get people back to that. Yeah, I really appreciated how your book was uh, approachable and yet didn't skimp on the content. So it's something really great you can give to a, a person who's really trying to sort out all of the different views that they see about Jesus and the things they hear about the resurrection. Now, Daryl, you wrote the forward for this. How can you think, how do, can you help us think through the bedrock facts and how do those bedrock facts help us begin to sort out all these different views that people have about Jesus and the resurrection? Well, I think it's clear, uh, it's important to be clear about what the book is doing. Uh, and, uh, and so someone hearing this introduction might say, wait a minute, atheists and agnostics agree with Christians about things related to the resurrection? Mm -hmm. How in the world does that work? Mm -hmm. uh, and so the book is about kind of the agreement about, about the dates and historical facts that are at the root of Christian claims doesn't necessarily mean that an atheist believes that Jesus rose from the dead. Okay, that would be a very difficult concept. If, if that happened, the book would be incredibly successful, Justin. Uh, uh, but, uh, uh, but, uh, but what it does point to is how early and how rich and how deep um, these core ideas of Christianity go back. You know, some skeptical handlings of the Bible suggest that there's much later material that's been laid on top of what we see and that the Christian faith really evolved, if I can use that word, into, uh, into something that became orthodoxy well down the road. So what Jesus was really involved with and what became the Christian faith are actually, if I can say this, not Siamese twins, okay, but true twins separated from one another. And uh, Justin's book is designed to show, no, these two things are attached to each other, that the chronological sequence of the teaching and development of this doctrine is so much on top of these events that you've got to recognize that the catalyst for all this is what Jesus did and said. And so uh, I think that's the thrust of the book. And sometimes uh, we're so distant from those events, you know, 
2,000 plus years, that people are slow to see that. And if they hear that, particularly the way this often gets expressed, well, wait a minute, there are 30 to 60 years between what we see in the Gospels and what we what happened with Jesus. And, and stories change in that time and things can be done in that time, that kind of thing. So Justin's trying to take that, that gap what I call minding the gap, and pull it back so you can see how mm -hmm. tight on top of itself it actually is, which makes it a different kind of historical issue. Mm -hmm. Getting into that tunnel period. Yep. We can reach back into that tunnel period. Exactly. The first 20 years of Christianity. Yep. Yeah, so it really gives us kind of a, a starting point where we can say, okay, even, even those non-Christian scholars, we can at least agree on this. Let's start there, and at least we have a place to begin to build on asking questions about uh, who Jesus is and uh, who he claimed to be, and of course, the details surrounding the resurrection. So whatever it is that Christians were teaching at the time, they were teaching from a very early point. That's, mm -hmm. that's, that's the, in many ways, the point of the book. It wasn't something that came later. It wasn't something the early church foisted upon the Jesus history, that kind of thing. That's what's being, that's what's right. being dealt with in the book. Mm -hmm. Now, Justin, the idea that Jesus was raised from the dead, how common would a claim like that have been in the ancient world? Well, I mean, when we're talking about Jewish resurrection, I mean, we're talking about the, the resurrection that was prophesied in Daniel, for example, in Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, that many who sleep in the dust will rise, some to everlasting shame and destruction, and others will shine like the stars. That kind of resurrection, you know, Jews believed, uh, many of them believed that it would happen at the end of the world. But as far as uh, claiming somebody rose from the dead in that resurrection sense mm -hmm. in the middle of history, mm -hmm. this is unparalleled that I know of. I don't think anyone ever claimed, let alone Jewish or anyone outside of, of Judaism, claimed that an individual Messiah or whoever rose from the dead. So, so this is an innovative, unique, unparalleled idea that these earliest followers of Jesus came up with. So the, the historical question is, where did they get the idea? Hmm. Where did hmm. they get that idea that their leader, that the one, their leader Jesus, who was crucified, rose again from the dead, beginning that resurrection that was prophesied in Daniel. It's exact, exactly the way it says it, actually, in one of the passages in the book of Acts. I think it's Acts chapter 4. It says they were preaching in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. I mean, they were saying that the resurrection of the dead prophesied in Daniel has begun in Jesus. That, that is an unparalleled, unique claim. And so it begs for, a, for an answer from history of, of where did they come up with that. Mm -hmm. So this is an unexpected thing. It sounds so so common to us today just because Christianity is such a force and so influential in the world. Um, but we're going to talk about that a little later, too, the, uh, the influence that Jesus has had uh, all through, uh, throughout history, even to today. But in your book, you focus on Paul. And Paul wrote a letter to the Corinthian church, and this is one of the undisputed letters of Paul. It contains a very interesting uh, tradition in 1 Corinthians 15. Three to seven. I'm going to read that text here in a minute. But what makes the content of that passage so important as a place for us to to focus in on and begin this discussion? Yeah, I talk about this as as just the bedrock source of Christianity. I mean, it's the Magna Carta of Christianity. It's an incredible thing that here we have basically the most essential, the essential of the essentials of what we believe as Christians: that Jesus died for our sins, that he was buried that he rose again from the dead. It all fulfilled the scriptures of, of the Old Testament. And this is all together in this, what's, what many scholars call a creedal tradition or a formula. They, 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 they describe it in different ways, but it's something that Paul is quoting that goes back, like we said, in that, that, that early, early decades of, of Christianity. And most scholars would put it within five years of Jesus's death. I, I found that on average, 
across the board, scholars put it at five years. Some put it uh, maybe a decade after Jesus' death, and some, uh, like the late James Dunn, great New Testament scholar, he put it at months, and his Jesus remembered. He said that within months of Jesus' death, that they were they were formulating this uh, creedal statement that we find in 1 Corinthians 15 that, that, that you'll read. Christ died for our sins, buried, rose again, and appeared to a number of individuals and groups. It's, it's truly extraordinary, uh, especially when you compare this to any other religion, any other uh, group uh, from ancient from the ancient world. You know, nothing. Nobody has something that early close to their religious leader uh, that that I know of. It's an incredible thing that we have this uh, this really uh, pearl of great price. I would call it. Hmm. Well, let's walk through this text together, and let's just start with verse three. And Paul writes. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Now, you mentioned this was a creed. How do we know that this is actually a creed that Paul's quoting here, that it's something that he got from before? Well, most point one to the, to the language that Paul uses as he introduces it. He says, for I received and I delivered. And that language we see commonly in, for example, the Mishnah, and in other Jewish writings, we, uh, Josephus uses this kind of language for the tra- for the transmission of tradition, uh, and so and so it's already in that language we see that. But I mean, it's just it's just uh, kind of common sense when you just see that Paul is saying, "I received this clearly to a group that he uh, had had planted this church. He planted this church in Corinth. We have it recorded in, in the Book of Acts. Most scholars put that planting of the church somewhere around 49, 50, even 51 A.D. somewhere around there." But if he, re- if he delivered it to them and he received it before then, then he received it sometime before he planted the church in Corinth. And so when did he receive it? And again, that's where uh, most scholars would, would say it was somewhere in that first five years after Paul's conversion, either right after his conversion uh, in somewhere near Damascus, or it was when he met with Peter and James uh, around maybe 37, 38 A.D., in that, in that phenomenal meeting that we have recorded in the uh, book of Galatians that Peter and Paul hung out for about two weeks in Jerusalem mm-hmm. uh, sometime in the late 30s AD. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, that I mean, it, and again, this is one of those things that's indisputed. It's, it's not disputed that this is a tradition that Paul received and that goes back that early. So if this creed predates the Gospels and even Paul, who obviously he wrote this Paul letter, letter, so it came before him, is, is this the earliest mention of Jesus' death? Dr. Bach can correct me, but I, I would say it is. I mean, I think I think as far as for a formula for some sort of written tradition, even if it was just oral in the beginning, um, I think this is the earliest statement of Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection that we have on record. Daryl, is that right? Yeah, I would think so in, in a written form. Now, mm-hmm. well, when we get further on down in our conversation, I think we're going to push this date. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. back and and lower this gap because we have to ask ourselves okay so where did this come from and where does Paul where does Paul's ability to understand the Christian message come from when Jesus appears to him on the Damascus road yeah. and uh, so all that all that theology it may not be in a creedal statement but all that theology out of early Christian preaching has to be in place for him to process the experience that actually turned mm-hmm. him around Mm-hmm. So uh, that puts right. us way earlier. So the distinction between something written and mm-hmm. passed on versus something that exists and is part of the teaching and preaching of the church needs to be made. But the two may be very tightly related to one another. Mm-hmm. 
Now, in this we, verse, and it's agreed upon that Paul was converted at most maybe two years after Jesus. Correct. That's yeah. and that's the point. Is that so that's before exactly. that? So now we're now we're in that J- James Dunn estimation, which is months. We're talking yeah, yeah. months. Exactly correct. And that and the, and the point I like to make is is that is that Paul can't even process his vision to understand what it means without that preaching being the precursor. To, and it was in his head before that event. So, and he's got to have heard that at some previous point. And of course, because he's been persecuting the church all along, he's hearing that in some cases much more with much more time than that than that time when he goes to Damascus to deliver. Or theoretically, he was supposed to deliver letters to begin arresting people there who were Christians. So, mm-hmm. um, so that's been in works for the long for a long time. It reflects his own commitment uh, that it was reflected in the experiences depicted about Stephen and Acts. And so all this is, is reasonably well documented, certainly accepted. And so um, we're, you know, it's not just the data when these things are written down that's important. There is a, there is a right. prehistory to that mm-hmm. that is very, very important. And this creed represents part of that prehistory that Paul is reporting on in 1 Corinthians 15. So it's not the date of 1 Corinthians 15 that we're talking about. It's the grade of the tradition that Paul yep. received that he passed on to the Corinthians long before that letter was written. Mm-hmm. And something, I'll just add to that something that I found incredible too. You know, I've read as many as that I could find commentaries on 1 Corinthians. Uh, specifically 15, going back to the earliest church, to the earliest comments that were made. And it really was the turn of the 20th century that that historical critical scholarship first started to uh, make these statements about how uh, these, uh, whether they were Christological hymns uh, that I think we'll talk about later, or creedal statements like 1 Corinthians 15, that they are pre-Paul's letters. Free Pauline, and and this is something that just wasn't commented on. You know, you have the early church fathers, you have the re- reformers. They're talking about First Corinthians fifteen, but they never, that I found, make that point that it goes back that it's that it's something that Paul is quoting that goes back this early. And so this really is a fruit of, you know, we hear so much critical things about uh, negative things about historical critical scholarship, but this really is a fruit of of the historical critical scholarship that 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 just uh, about one hundred and twenty years ago uh, that that these things have been uh, popularized so and and that's completely understandable because if you if you think through before we get to the historical critical method people thought the bible was inspired so it was what it was was a true and was given and so you didn't go back to try and do the historical grounding work that is you know really the bread and butter of historical critical study very true Um, and uh, and so, so it would be natural that the historical setting would emerge in that kind of a context where those kinds of questions are now being asked. And, and so you're right. This is a this is a positive fruit of that kind of work. And of course, anything that comes through that sieve, if I can say it that way, that emerges on the other end, is of great value as we talk about the Bible, because it means that people who worked on this aren't people who have a faith and and therefore what often gets talked about today is a bias that could color what's being said. 
Uh, no, this is this is there, and people recognize it. Whether they have a faith or not, they recognize it's a part of the historical development of the ideas that are associated with Christianity, and that can help you if you're interacting with someone who's skeptical about the Bible. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, this creed uses the word Christ here, and Daryl, when you think about the crucifixion, well, first of all, creeds, they don't give us all the details, right? But they give us something that's really easy to, to memorize and to remember. So it says Jesus died, but we know he was crucified. And we think about the crucifixion, there was a sign that was put up on Jesus' cross with the charge, King of the Jews. Now, how does that line up with Jesus' claim to be the Christ at his Jewish examination in terms of how that was, got translated? Well, of course, the most significant thing is to ask yourself, what's he doing being crucified to begin with? Uh, you know, what's he doing up on the cross? And the answer to that question is he's being crucified because from a Roman government standpoint, he is being charged with sedition. He is claiming to possess an authority that Rome itself did not give him. Uh, the way I like to say it is, is that Rome is responsible for reporting for for uh, for uh, representing and authenticating its rulers and its government. And so, if you claim to be a king, when Rome didn't appoint you to be a king, that's viewed as sedition. That's viewed as treason. And then the next line that I like to make is, uh, and so um, Rome believes in law and order. You follow our law, or we'll put you in order. And the way Rome we was put good at, <laughs> that's right. And Rome was good at crucifying uh, people who claimed to be Messiah. Exactly right, because because they didn't appoint them. So that, and even though there's a Jewish background to Jesus' death as well, coming from the Jewish leadership, who were challenging him at the level of being a blasphemer. Uh, because he was claimed, at least in the trial before the Jewish leadership, that he could sit at the right hand of God in heaven, which is a religious claim. Rome wasn't going to process a religious claim. Uh, Rome could care less about Jewish disputes of theology. They only cared if it, if it impinged on their own claims of authority, which is what being a Messiah is, because Messiah is a king of Israel. Uh, mm -hmm. And so when it says... Uh, Jesus Nathers, King of the Jews, when it says King of the Jews on that titulus that is associated with the cross, it's identifying the nature of the crime, and it's reinforcing the idea uh, that's in the creed, that, that this was a claim, a disputed claim from Rome's perspective, but a claim that God vindicated through resurrection from Christians and, and this, and from a Christian point of view, God's perspective, that tells you who Jesus is. So that's why we're in the core part of the creed. Mm -hmm. It's to use Justin's word, a piece of bedrock about Christian theology. And so we build from there. Yeah, yeah. So it's interesting to, to point out, you know, that the, the king of the Jews on the cross, that's a bedrock fact. That's, mm -hmm. one, of those facts that, that's one of the facts from the Gospels that are is agreed upon across the board. Only, mm. only those who hold that the entire Jesus story is a myth deny that element of the story. And that percentage of groups is so small. Uh, it, Less than 1%. To get, that's why I say 99%. <laughs> exactly right. So it's, you know, it, it's a snow white truth, 99.9% .9 pure. That's yeah, right. and Justin compares that, that kind of thinking to, you know, Holocaust deniers and people who don't think we put a man on the moon, people, things like right. that, you know. Yeah. It, it's really out there, that out there. So let's go on to the next verse, verse 4, uh, where, the, where Paul is quoting the creed, and he says, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Uh, 
Now, how likely is it that the burial here hints at burial in a tomb? Are there other ways people were buried, or is it pretty much given that that's, that's what it means to bury someone in a tomb? Uh, Justin, what do you think? I'll just make the point on this uh, first that uh, this, is, this is, isn't a bedrock fact in the sense that it is, doesn't reach that high bar where everyone across the board agrees that Jesus had this proper burial and was put in a tomb. But I do think the evidence suggests that in every way. I mean, in fact, when you parallel this, this, this phrase, it's one word in the Greek, um, you see it in, in Acts 2, you see it in Luke 16, and uh, when, when it says uh, David, King David was buried and his tomb remains here to this day. So the burial and the tomb go together, and it talked about the rich man being buried. He was buried in a tomb, in a very nice tomb, in the, in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And so you see consistently that, that, that for Paul to say he was buried, that doesn't mean he was thrown in a ditch somewhere. That doesn't mean he was eaten by dogs. That means he had some sort of proper burial. So I, so I think we should see that as a, as a bedrock fact. I think all the evidence supports it, but as far as when it comes to all scholars just saying across the board that it's it's the case, uh, it, I think it's somewhere. If, if, if last I saw from like Gary Habermas, mm-hmm. he, he says over seventy five percent or so mm-hmm. agree on the the proper burial by Joseph Arimathea and uh, the empty tomb on the third day, but but it doesn't reach that ninety nine point nine percent. But that that in no way means it's not true. It just it just means it's not reaching that high bar that I'm talking about in the book. But I think the evidence suggests it's in the early creed. And why would Paul say? Why would he he mention uh, he was buried if he was like thrown in a ditch or, or you know, these other crazy views that that we find sometimes? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the alternative is the idea that he was buried uh, like any uh, felon crucified might who didn't have uh, someone to bury him and just thrown into, uh, I, I guess, a criminal's grave would be the way to defraud. To but if that were to happen, that would make the entire launch of the Christian movement very, very difficult. Because <laughs> yes. you're in Jerusalem, you're preaching that there is an empty tomb, uh, you're preaching that his body is not discoverable, but if Rome had put it in a grave with a whole bunch of other criminals alongside, you know, how, how in the world are you going to get away with the claim of an empty tomb if an empty Be tomb difficult. never existed? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so, you know, and the Romans come along and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, what is this empty tomb stuff? Uh, we put him over here with, with all the other bad guys. Um, and that would have been the end of it. But that's not what you get. And, and then the Jewish tradition that you see in Matthew about the body being stolen, mm-hmm. that can't exist without the idea of an empty tomb being behind it. You know, they knew where the body was and they went to steal it. It's not in the, it's not in a, I mean, the other action would be, well, he's just one body among many and he's over here, take a, you know, four, go down four blocks, take a right. And there's the, there's the criminal's tomb. So none of that makes any sense uh, in terms of the, of the background. So that's a, that's a solid piece of the creed as well. Mm-hmm. So and and I also quote, I quote in the book uh, both Josephus and Philo of Alexandria, who were who were very close to the time of Jesus, and they both uh, speak about the proper burial of Jews who had been crucified by their family, and so mm-hmm. this uh, because it was on high, many times it was on holy days, and so uh, this fits uh, what happened to Jesus according to the Gospels in every way fits uh, the evidence of the time. In fact, it even fits the Mishnaic law that says that if you are if you are crucified as a criminal then you cannot be buried in a family tomb. 
and Jesus was not buried in a family tomb, even though, even though you know there were people who claimed him, he was buried in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb, not in a family tomb. So even the dishonor of the kind of felon's death that Jesus participated in meant that he was not given, at least in that sense, an honorable burial. There's a huge debate about whether Jesus' burial was honorable or not, to which the answer is, well, answers yes and yes okay it was honorable in the sense that he was buried he was he was honored with spices and taken care of by joseph arimathea and nicodemus but it was not an honorable burial in the sense that he didn't get to be buried with his family which by the way is a side apologetic on the claim about a decade ago that jesus's body is retained in some family tomb in jerusalem you know that's been more recently discovered that can't work in light of what the text is saying about the way jesus was buried so here the creed mentions the burial we have 75 percent of scholars that will hold to the empty tomb not one of the bedrock facts maybe a secondary uh secondary kind of fact but we do have these uh these things that cohere with that idea of burial this episode is brought to you in part by thomas nelson publisher of nine lives and counting a bounty hunter's journey to faith hope and Redemption, written by Dwayne Dog the Bounty Hunter Chapman. Nine Lives and Counting not only offers a fresh perspective on well-known life events, but also ventures into behind-the-scenes territory and backstories never shared publicly. Nine Lives and Counting is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. Let's look at verse 5 that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. So now we're getting into the resurrection appearances that are mentioned. And Justin, what's the significance of mentioning Cephas or Peter and then the Twelve right here? And again, it should be pointed out that this is another unparalleled thing in ancient literature. We don't see this catalog of appearances of an apparition or, or a resurrected person or anything like that that we see here in 1 Corinthians 15. Really incredible thing. He lists multiple individuals and groups, and himself having seen the risen Jesus, that the risen Jesus appeared to these people. And he starts with, as you said, uh, Cephas or Cephas, uh, the Aramaic name for Peter, probably the exact name, the Sissima Verba, the literal words of Jesus, that he, what he would have said when he called him Rock, when he, when he mm. changed Simon's name. This would have been an actual his actual name. This is the name that Paul knew him as. In fact, in the in the early letters of Paul, we see this is how he refers to him. He only mentions, uh, he only uses Peter a few times. He usually uh, refers to him as uh, Kephos. But yeah, he, he's mentioning the fact that that Peter had this appearance. This also agrees with Luke. Uh, if you, if you uh, look at Luke 24, it also says that he appeared to Simon. And uh, the appearance to the 12 happened uh, that evening, according to John and according to Luke. So you have an agreement here with the creed and with the later gospel accounts that he appeared to Peter and he appeared to the, the, the group of disciples that evening, probably minus Judas. So technically 11, but the 12 is probably like a title that was used mm-hmm. uh, for Jesus's uh, inner circle. But again, this, this, is, this would be bedrock fact. The bedrock fact here would be that Peter believed Jesus appeared to him and that a group of disciples they, they all wouldn't, all scholars wouldn't agree on exactly a certain number, but they would agree there was a group appearance that is reflected in this, in this tradition that we find not only here in, in the creedal tradition, but also in, um, 
in the gospel accounts as well. Mm -hmm. There's something subtle going on here with the whole of this that I hope we we note, so I'll note it, and that that is, um, notice back in verse 3 where it says that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, and of course, Mm -hmm. what Paul is trying to do here is he's trying to give core facts about the early history of Christianity and what happened to Jesus. That's what this creed is about. But most people don't think about this. How do you prove that someone died for your sins? What does dying for your sins look like, and how do you prove it? Okay, now that's actually a very good question. Okay, uh, it, it's a little bit like, how can you prove that God performed a miracle? Okay, it's something you can't see. I mean, I, I, mm-hmm. I sometimes joke about this when I teach on it and say, can someone tell me what forgiveness of sins looks like? I mean, bye, sin. Glad to see you're going away. Hope you stay away a long time. We'll see you later. You know, you, it's not something you can see. It's not something you can grasp. What Paul is claiming in this chapter is a vindication of who Jesus is by what God has done. I can see the empty tomb. I can testify to appearances that take place. But the theological significance of what that means, I can't show. So I show something that I can experience and see to point to something that I can't uh, justify and prove on its own terms. And that's what the resurrection fundamentally is. It's a vindication. It's a vindication of Jesus' claims. And what Paul is claiming the entire chapter is, if we don't have a resurrection, we don't have a vindication. Mm -hmm. If we don't have a vindication, then the theology that the church teaches, we can't know to be the case. If we can't know that that is the case, then we are, as he says later, the most pitied of all people because we've hoped for something that actually isn't a hope. Mm -hmm. So, So that's what's at stake in what the creed is presenting, and that's why Justin said, this is bedrock stuff that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. And, 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 it's, and, and just to add to that, you know, the whole point of 1 Corinthians 15, really the heart of the, the entire letter, is to argue that because Jesus rose, we will all rise. And new creation has begun with Jesus' resurrection. That, that, that resurrection that Daniel talked about has begun in Jesus. And because we know he rose from the dead, we all will rise in the future. Because the whole, the whole point of him talking about this is questions that he received from the church in Corinth about the resurrection body. And so he starts with the foundation. He starts with the bedrock of Jesus' resurrection to point to the fact that we all will rise one day. And so he mentions Cephas here. He mentions the 12 in verse 6. He says, uh, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. So now we get an actual number right here. Uh, what do you say more to people? Than 500. More yeah, than five. More, that's right. More than 500. So what would you say to someone who's like, oh, come on, more than 500? This is clearly legendary because why would you say this, you know, ast- astronomical number? Uh, how do we respond to the, the, the claim that this is just way too developed and legendary? Yeah, this is a fun one. You know, again, this one doesn't pass that high bar uh, uh, of the bedrock facts either. But the best that I can tell, the reasoning behind that is just because it's, it's, it's too good to be true. I mean, it's just such an incredible claim that we happen to have in our earliest statement about the resurrection. 
But people like, like for example, the mythicist uh, Robert Price, one of the few mythicists who, who have uh, credentials in, uh, biblical, in biblical studies, he actually wrote a, a, an article trying to argue that this was interpolated into 1 Corinthians, that, that the whole creedal st- statement actually, uh, including this, is, was interpolated into 1 Corinthians 15. It comes from much later, like the end of the first century. And one of the reasons he gives in the article is because of this statement about the 500. He's like, how could that be so early? This is, this is legendary stuff. This is stuff that we get in the Gospel of Peter and the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, the kind of stuff we get second, third century. But isn't that amazing that we get it in this earliest statement of Christianity? We get this testimony that the 500, and even Bart Ehrman, his, his reasoning for rejecting is fascinating too. He basically says, there is a, this is, I'm quoting him, he says, there is a certain force in this argument, meaning that, that Jesus really appeared to 500. He says that in, in, in how, uh, how, how Jesus became God. There's a certain force to this argument. Yes, there is. There's a strong <laughs> force to this argument. But, but he, then he just dismisses it and says, well, Paul may have just heard it from somebody who heard it from this person, and that's why, you know, we can't trust it. But it's from this earliest creed. And Paul, no doubt, being in Jerusalem, he had talked to some of these people. I mean, he, his, his reputation was on the line with the Corinthians. He's defending himself against these false teachers. If, if there wasn't really these people going around saying that they had seen the risen Jesus— his reputation would have been would have been tarnished. So, so he is definitely, I think, telling the truth. We have every reason to believe him that there was a large crowd of people that saw the risen Jesus at one point, and there and there were many alive at the time of the writing of First Corinthians in the fifties A.D. ready readily available to to be uh, in, to be uh, questioned and to be to, to to be investigated about what it was like to see the risen Jesus. It's just it's true. It's extraordinary. Yeah, I call it the check it out portion of the creed. I mean, uh, you know, you can go to these guys and check it out. Some of them are still alive. You mm-hmm. know, ask them. Now, if none of them are alive, you know, if you go going around, did you see Jesus? Did you? No, not me, not me, not me, not me, not me. I can't find anyone who's alive, Paul. What's going on? You know, there's probably a line of people waiting to talk to him in Jerusalem. <laughs> so, uh, you know, so you're sitting here going, you know, he, he's sending a signal that this that this is not made up, you know, um, and that it's an apologetic. It's this truly an apologetic. Checked, this can be checked out, and so, uh, so it's an important part of the creed uh, beyond the individual apostolic witnesses that he mentions. Uh, etc. I mean, it's an interesting, the, the list itself is very, very uh, interesting in terms of, of who gets named here. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and uh, you know, James is mentioned. That's mm-hmm. interesting because we're told in the Gospels that his family uh, was, was slow, uh, if you will, to believe everything that he was claiming. So, um, so the resurrection brother. accomplished something. Uh, that his ministry itself didn't accomplish. Uh, and so that's that's worth noting as well. Yeah, so we have the significance of James as one who didn't believe in Jesus during his earthly ministry. That's verse 7 says, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. We have the mention of Cephas, we have the mention of the 12, and these 500 people. And I think you're right, This most of whom are still alive is an implicit, go check it out. Um, these aren't just, you know, oh, my grandpa heard this, you know. Uh, something that you can't check out. This is. Really, I heard from a rabbi somewhere in. Right. Someplace, you know, I, it's not that. This is actually and something we, that's and fairly. We know, and we know people traveled. That's what's so cool. Yeah, we know Apollos, yeah. for example. Apollos traveled to Corinth. We know he went there. We know Peter 
went from Jerusalem to Corinth. Paul obviously did, Barnabas. So we know people did, went to Corinth and back to Jerusalem. This, this was a, a, a very possible travel for the Corinthians to make if they wanted to, on holiday, go and meet some of these people who saw the risen Jesus. Mm-hmm. What's really interesting, of course, is that in Corinth is like Ephesus in this regard, is, is that we're talking about areas that were a commercial crossroads that uh, that drew people and people moved in and out of, that kind of thing. You know, Corinth was, um, you often get this comparison, Corinth was the Las Vegas of the ancient world. And right. so uh, in that sense, in terms of its reputation. So, Ephesus is New Orleans. Exactly right. So you're sitting there going, you know, these are places that people are moving through on the way to somewhere else. Um, so that, the, uh, the, it's the closest thing to ancient cosmopolitan cities that we can be thinking about in this list. If you think of Rome, Corinth, etc., Ephesus, these are not minor, minor offshoot locations. And so this kind of check it out appeal could exist. Mm-hmm. This is fairly unique in world religious literature, that the fact that you would you would name people like this, you would imply that you can go and talk to them and check this out. Uh, and of course, the, the fact that Christianity is based on Jesus, a real historical person who had to really, ha- really live, really uh, get crucified, buried, and really physically rise from the dead, or else the whole, the whole faith crumbles. It, it doesn't work by Paul's own admission. Um, so let's talk about Paul in verse 8. He goes on to, now he's, he's adding himself in here. Last of all, he says, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Now, most people jump right into the Gospels, obviously, when they start talking about Jesus and, and what we can know about Jesus historically. But Daryl, help us understand more about why Paul is so important when it comes to uh, when it comes to us thinking through these these bedrock facts? Well, we've already alluded to this to some degree. I mean, and the way I like to talk about it is talk about it in relationship to the way the Gospels become a part of the conversation. Mm-hmm. So people say, well, wait a minute. Um, it's 30 years, in fact, in some cases for others who are skeptical, it's longer than that, mm-hmm. between the time of Jesus' events and the time the Gospel being written, usually alluding, Mark, alluding to Mark, Matthew, and Luke, with John coming in the 90s, 60 years later. So there's a gap, okay? So I'm going to try and do this visually. So there's a gap here that you have to deal with. Um, then you can say, well, we know we can date the theology back to Paul's letters. Okay, that takes us back to about 49, okay? Most people put Galatians in about the 49 period. Assuming a crucifixion either 30 or 33, that gets debated. So we're within 16 years, basically, maybe a little more. Okay, so that's when Paul writes. But Paul is expressing a theology he's carried and preached with him throughout the ancient world. Okay, how far back can we push that? That goes all the way back to that Damascus Road appearance. That goes, in fact, it precedes the Damascus Road experience because, again, as we said earlier, he has to be able to process this raised Jesus experience when it happens. And the, and the only way he's able to do that, you know those guys who I'm fighting against, those bad guys, the apostles? They were preaching a raised Jesus. Mm-hmm. I am now seeing him. Okay, mm-hmm. that takes you back within that those few months, a couple of years, yeah. 18 months 18 or months. so before uh, up to the time of the crucifixion, etc. And it presupposes that what Paul was fighting against 
was that message in that preaching. That's mm -hmm. what he's objecting to, mm -hmm. that Jesus was risen from the dead and that he would claim to be the Messiah and claim to be in the middle of God's program and plan. So you literally have taken this huge gap and shrunk it right down on top of itself. And from an ancient historical perspective, that's significant. That's not quite like an autobiography, but almost. And so, um, so that... That reduces that gap. It, it reduces the period in which the theology appeared. Mm -hmm. It becomes very hard to blame the theology of the early church for all of this uh, that we see. Uh, and so, uh, again, the rootage and the catalyst, coming back to the resurrection idea itself, you know, only the Sadducees, the Sadducees denied resurrection. The Pharisees believed in a physical resurrection at the end of history. What's responsible for the mutation? that Justin described earlier, a resurrection in the midst of history. Okay, something's got to catalyze that change. Radical mutation. Exactly mm -hmm. right. And so in the midst of that, then you get this declaration and you get the experience of Paul on top of it. And you're dating the core theology of the early church, the bedrock content of Christianity, back on top of the very events themselves as they were unfolding. It hardly gets any better. Yeah, that, that's amazing. And on top of that, you know, Paul is an enemy of the Christian faith at this point, an outright enemy of the movement. He doesn't miss Jesus so much that he wants to see him. He wasn't in a state to hallucinate this, this exactly. vision. And Plus, let me say that that's, the, that's one of the bedrock facts, too, that Paul's, Paul's transformation from this Pharisaic persecutor of the church to this world-changing apostle of Christ— that, again, is agreed upon. I mean, go, go back to the beginning of historical critical scholarship. I mean, going back to 250 years ago, this has always been agreed upon. I don't know of anyone who's ever said that Paul did not have this. Even mythicists will agree on this one. So, so Paul having this transformation is agreed upon across the board. And so, so you have to ask, what did Paul see? What transformed the life of this man? And, and that you only have two options. Either Jesus did it or some type of psychosis. I mean, that's, right. that's it's really the only two options that you have. And, and because the same, the same people who would say it's some kind of psychosis, many of them will quote Paul's uh, letter, 1 Corinthians 13, at their wedding. Exactly. <laughs> well, not only uh, that, I was going to say, he doesn't write like a crazy man. He doesn't write like a crazy man. He only wrote one of the greatest chapters on love ever. That's right. And he would have to share this, this same auditory and visual hallucination simultaneously with Cephas and with, you know, f over 500 people and the 12, uh, all of them hallucinating the same thing, audio exactly. and visual at the same time. Exactly. Really, Not just one person. I mean, that, I, I, I compare it in the book to Mormonism and, and Islam. When you're dealing with Mormonism, you're dealing with just Joseph Smith. It's all about him. And so let's look at his credibility on what he claims that he saw with, with the angel Moroni and, and Jesus. And with Muhammad, what did he see with the angel Gabriel? It's all based on one eyewitness. With Christianity, we have a plethora of witnesses. We have an embarrassment of riches when it comes to eyewitnesses. Mm -hmm. We're running a little low on our time here, but there is a key text that, uh, Daryl, you mentioned to me earlier um, that we should take a look at here briefly. It's 1 Corinthians 8, verses 4 to 6. And this is really key in understanding how Paul answered the question, who is Jesus? So let me just read this text briefly for us. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For, for although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, 
as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things, uh, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. Daryl, help us understand what this shows about how Paul thought about Jesus. Well, again, this is another text that shows how early the core theology of the church is. So it's another bedrock text, if I can say it that way. It's probably one of the most important bedrock Christological texts, early Christological texts we have in the New Testament. And I, and I think it's important to notice several things. When he talks about those who are called gods in the world, the ancient world was full of gods. I mean, if you go to um, Pompeii today and you walk through the streets of, of Pompeii, pay. Um, there are at least six different temples to six different gods that are hmm. are still preserved there. Um, in Jesus the, rid the world of all of those gods. And, and, the, and in the, and in the uh, Roman calendar, there are 150 religious holidays, most of which are dedicated to the gods. I like to joke with people. I said, we need to adopt the Roman calendar so we can have a few more holidays. Be one every three days. I mean, I can live on, <laughs> I can, I can live on that existence. So the gods were everywhere. And, mm -hmm. and he's basically saying, we know, we know in one sense they are not gods. They, 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 spiritual forces may exist, but other gods other than God doesn't exist. And then he goes to a variation of what is called the Shema. The Shema is the confession of Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. But he adjusts it. And the adjustment is there's one God and there's one Lord. And there's the Father and then there's one Lord Jesus Christ. Those are the two titles that he does to differentiate within that. And then he does something else that people often miss, and that is he puts Jesus on the creator-creature side of the creator-creature divide. Crucified and if, man. And if you're thinking Jewishly, there's only one creator. Okay, that's the God of Israel. Mm -hmm. So when you do that, you've shifted... You've shifted the importance of who Jesus is, and of course he names him. One Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we live. To which someone who might be thinking about this might scratch their head, get my hairline, and say, wait a minute, I thought, I thought Jesus was born, you know, long after the creation. And Paul's saying, no, wait a minute. Jesus was there on the creation side of the creation of the creation creature divide, which puts him in in the divine world. Now, one other point to make: in the ancient world, it was common sometimes for humans to be elevated to the status of gods. This was done with emperors, etc. But the interesting thing there is is that when a human being was elevated to the status of a god, they were kind of put at the bottom of the pantheon, if I can say it that way. They made it, but they made it in by the hair of their chinny-chin-chin because they did something that, that basically the honoring of, a, of an emperor with the status of god says, he treated us, he ruled us like uh, with the authority and wisdom of a god. That's really what they were doing. Mm -hmm. um, but with Jesus... What we're getting is a seeming elevation, or certainly an, an exaltation. But that exaltation puts him right at the top of the pantheon, if I can say it that way. He's right there at the right hand of God. In fact, the point of the creed is, in effect, that 
that God is responsible for showing that he has this position for it's God who raised him from the dead. And so all of that is designed to underscore the, the Christological depth of the theology of the early church mm. uh, being right there from the very early days That's in terms of what it is really the church incredible. was teaching and preaching. That's incredible. amazing. That's amazing. Well, Justin, we're coming to the end of our time here, but you've not only done all the research and looked into this on an academic level and as a historian, you've also been doing ministry in the Middle East and engaging with Muslims. How has that impacted your understanding of thinking about the resurrection and, and the way that you engage with people? Yeah, I've been blessed to uh, be in the Middle East for the last three years. I've been in Amman, Jordan as a professor and uh, also gone to Egypt and a few other places and, and definitely been engaging with uh, believers and unbelievers alike, Muslims. And, and I would say, you know, the bedrock facts apply to everybody. So whether a person's atheist or, or Jewish or Muslim or Buddhist or Hindu, the bedrock facts are just facts. You know, facts are stubborn things. So I think we should present that evidence. But something in the Muslim world that I, do fa I have found to be fascinating and I've been able to experience personally, maybe Dr. Bach has as well in his travels there, but the visions and the dreams that Jesus has been giving to not just Muslims, but also Hindus, but just that part of the world, that North Africa, Middle East, um, uh, India, those kind of areas of the world, you have this kind of, uh, and, it's, and it's been well-researched well as well, you have across the board independently people from those faiths having these visions or dreams of Jesus, even some uh, in the States, like uh, the, late, the late Nabil Qureshi, if you remember, he had his visions of Jesus in, in America. But, mm -hmm. but people of that, that part of the world independently having these, these very similar type dreams of this man in white, and he usually speaks in these dreams. It's usually scripture. So I got to meet some of these very people who converted out of Islam into Christianity and I, and I got to talk to them. I got to, like the Corinthians were always telling them to investigate the, the eyewitnesses. I got to talk to them and hear these stories. And it just fascinates me that you don't hear this happening with other religions. Like you don't hear Muslims having visions or dreams of Krishna or Muslims having visions or dreams of Joseph Smith. No Muslim ever had a, had a dream about Joseph Smith and said, oh my goodness, Mormonism is true. Hmm. Never happened. And so it's, it's fascinating to me that this does happen with Christianity, that across the board, these other religions are independently having visions and dreams of Jesus. I, I find this just further evidence that the Jesus that we're talking about did rise from the dead, and he's Lord of the world, and he's still alive, and he's still transforming people. You know, when I hear these stories, I think the principle of embarrassment applies as well, because these people, many of them take their lives into their hands to share this story. It's like, why would you make that I'm up? I'm making it up. <laughs> why would you make that up? The very people I was talking to, you know, if I, I mean, they, they had to do this completely in private. If they did it in public, yes, their lives would, were in danger. Wow. Well, Justin, thank you so much for, for being on the show today and sharing a little bit about your study and about your ministry. Um, thank you for writing the book. It was You're great. And uh, thanks for being on the show. Blessed to be here. And Daryl, thank you for being on the show as well. Glad to be here. I do tend to pop up now and again on the table. <laughs> <laughs> this is the first time I've had you in remotely, and it's just weird. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us on the table today. If you have a topic that you'd like us to consider on the table, please email us at thetable at dts.edu. And stay with us until next time. We see you again on the Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture.
Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well. This episode was brought to you in part by the Areopagus Podcast. Two clergy of different traditions, Father Andrew Stephen Damick and Michael Landsman, discuss encounters of historic Christianity with other religious traditions. How do we engage with those who believe differently? Listen wherever you get your podcasts.